Welcome to another episode of the Tim Wendelbow Coffee Podcast. Uh, today I have two people with me, which is incredible. <laughs> um, I have uh, Daniel and Marn, who both work for us as roasters and baristas. And uh, maybe Marn, you can start telling uh, the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I roast here at the Tim Wendelbow. Uh, I'm also a dance teacher on the side. Um, I did my bachelor's in development studies, uh, so I did write my bachelor on coffee production and climate change adaptation. So that's kind of my uh, gateway into working here. Yeah. And where did you... You went to some origin, did you? Uh, Uganda. Yeah. Yeah, Mbala. And worked with coffee there or yeah, kind I of observed? Yeah, interviewed some farmers, some cooperatives. How was that? It was very good, yeah. very um, uh, insightful. It was uh, kind of hard seeing uh, all the damage that climate change is doing mm. and just how unstable some of the farmers' lives are. Yeah. And also how very well they are doing in terms of just coping yeah. with climate change. Great, we're going to talk a lot about farming today, but uh, Daniel, maybe you can talk a, bit, a little bit about yourself as well. Yeah, I'm also a roaster at uh, Tim Melbo, uh, and barista, as you said. Um, I'm from northern Norway, uh, from Bode, or Moirana. I lived in Bode for some years before I applied for a job here. Um, never done any studies on coffee or climate, but uh, always I had a, a coffee as a hobby, Yeah, so it's really nice to... Get to work with the best guys. So more like a home barista who turned professional? Yes. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people like that. <laughs> <laughs> At least in the coffee industry. There's also lawyers, doctors, yeah. <laughs> philosophers <laughs> who just fall into coffee. But uh, to talk a little bit about the subject we're going to talk about today, uh, was this is kind of a teaching session. Like uh, when we get new employees, we normally go through a long session. Uh, it was two days for you guys where we one day just talk about how we buy coffee and uh, I show pictures from the farms we buy from, talk a little bit about how coffee is processed. There's, this is always uh, something we can repeat because there's a lot of information in one day. So I know you forget 90% of it. So I thought, uh, why not, since I wanted to do it uh, again with you, why not record it so that our listeners can kind of learn a little bit about how we actually buy coffee and work with producers. Um, so that's kind of um, the the goal for this podcast, uh, ex explaining you know how a small roaster like us buy coffee. <laughs> and uh, there's other ways you can buy coffee, of course. If you're a huge roaster, you have to buy maybe a, a thousand containers here or even more. Then you're not really operating in the same way that we do because it's not practically possible unless that's your business. So. There are importers like Nordic Approach who are above us. I think they buy a couple of hundred containers a year and they actually go to origin, work closely with producers and try to increase quality. So the reason why I wanted to record this now is because I just roasted samples today from one of the producers we buy from, because now it's kind of the uh, main season for me uh, as a green coffee buyer where we buy a lot of coffee. 
Um, and that's because they finished harvesting in uh, Ethiopia and Kenya in December. So that coffee is kind of ready. Uh, or final, they fin finalized the drying in January. And then we start receiving samples in February. And then we cup the samples. And then the coffee goes to the mill. And then it's shipped. And then we still haven't received the coffee. But that's because of uh, shipping delays uh, this year. And um, the same goes with the Central American countries. You know, Marisabel and Moises in the Caballero family, they harvest normally January through March. And uh, Hobnil, the Nascimento farm, they harvest from January through July. <laughs> and then uh, Los Pirineos, normally January, February, March as well. So most of those coffees are coming in. And then a little, little bit later in the year, we get the Tamana coffees because they harvest through August normally. So. If you're a customer of ours or you follow us, you might notice that the menu is getting smaller. As you, you as roasters probably notice, there's not that many coffees left. The warehouse is getting uh, uh, very clean. <laughs> so um, I thought it was a good uh, thing to talk about, you know, how, the process of how we actually buy coffee, so you understand a little bit behind that. So um, to kind of uh, start um, uh, the conversation a little bit. I mean, you can ask questions throughout. Uh, that's the idea. But um, we actually try to only buy coffees from people we know. And of course, in Africa, that can be a little bit challenging, especially in Kenya, where we buy mainly from cooperatives. But uh, we try to visit the cooperatives to see if they are, you know, uh, transparent and that they're working close with the, their members to in increase the quality and stuff. In Ethiopia, we have actually finally uh, started to buy from a few producers. And then in Latin America, uh, we only buy from single producers, as you may know. So that's kind of uh, the way I prefer to buy coffee, because I personally like the coffee more if I know how it's produced. <laughs> and that's one way of looking at it. And um, the other way uh, is also that Quality that doesn't happen by itself, as you may have seen in, in uh, was Uganda you were, uh, especially in countries like that. There are so many different farmers, and you have to train them in order to do quality, um, and not just at farm level, but on many other levels as well in in uh, every producing country. So that's kind of um, why I think it's important to have these relationships, and um, that's kind of been our strategy since uh, two thousand eight ish. We started in Kenya and then um, I started traveling also to Latin America, basically because we received coffees that tasted good when we got the sample. And then when the coffee arrived, it tasted bad. And it didn't really matter what we did with the roaster. Uh, I mean, you can roast fast, slow, light, dark, whatever. Uh, the coffee didn't taste better. Um, so I wanted to understand why. And that's kind of when I started traveling and understood that, okay, <laughs> When you look at like perfect farms, they do a great job. When you look at most farms, they don't really have the resources to, uh, to do the job that's necessary to produce consistent quality. So our kind of strategy now is to make sure we have good relationships and uh, buy uh, long term from, from producers we can work with. So when uh, we got the transparency report from you, like couple of months ago maybe when I first started and that's very like uh, a relief to see that we have like a full report but when you uh, visit farms and you want to kind of secure transparency how do you 
do that? Do you ask for a report, <laughs> or do you do you have something that you look for? To yeah, kind of. This is this is easy when you uh, visit farms. <laughs> If you know where the coffee is from, it's easy to be transparent because mm. you can speak with a producer. So normally when we buy coffees, we will negotiate the price with the producer. If like my Spanish wasn't that good before, now it's better. So now I can communicate directly with most of the people in Latin America. Um, but sometimes we had to kind of communicate through an exporter. Um, now we don't really have to do that. But the exporter is always kind of copied on the email because they also need to know they make the papers and everything. So we negotiate the price. It's not really a negotiation. We kind of have a fixed price that we have said this is the minimum we pay. And if the coffee is much better, we can pay more. But uh, that's the kind of way we do it. And then uh, normally I ask the exporter for like a breakdown of the costs. So, for instance, when I say we pay $5 FOB, that means the coffee is free, delivered free to the ship in a container. And uh, out of those $5, uh, the exporter might take $1. And because he has costs, he has to pay for the transportation, for the milling of the coffee, for the packing, the packaging itself. Uh, also sending samples. They have staff that evaluate samples and do logistics. So, of course, they need to get paid. And that means... Uh, this is an example in Colombia where we pay $1 to Alejandro and then $4 go to Elias. And then Elias, the farmer, has to pay the pickers, you know, fertilizer, food for the pickers, uh, gasoline to, you know, do go to town and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of how we break it down. And every country is a little bit different. Like in Kenya, I can't really get full transparency like that. Uh, I mean, we could if we really, really wanted to, but... Uh, then we kind of know, we negotiate the price with the washing station or the cooperative. They say yes, and then that price is contracted. And uh, out of those money, they can take, I think, up to 20%, because they have to cover cost for milling, uh, staff on the washing station, uh, and all the stuff, you know, administration. And then the farmers get 80% minimum, uh, based on receipts that they have gotten when they delivered cherries to the cooperative. So that's kind of a, that's actually a system that was implemented in the 80s by a, a Scandinavian uh, organization. Um, I actually met with a Norwegian guy who lived in uh, Nyeri in Kenya in the 80s and was part of this training uh, cool. training crew that was training the cooperatives on how to actually do the receipt system. And he said uh, they were really astonished when they discovered the the beauty of blueprints yeah <laughs> <laughs> because they could give a receipt to a farmer and let's say it said uh, you know five dollars <laughs> or five kilos and then the farmer would put a one before so it says 15 kilos <laughs> but the cooperative had the blueprint yeah. so that's kind of how it works there and uh, uh, we i mean we do get the sales contracts from the exporter as well so obviously they charge you know, the, um, a good amount for uh, transporting, milling, packing, all these kind of things. Um, so every farm and country is a little bit different. It's hard to kind of say that uh, what works in one place works in another. For instance, uh, in Honduras, I pay much less for uh, to the exporter. That's just because their costs are much lower compared to Colombia, for instance. So every country is a little bit different. Uh, the economies are different and so on. And also the setup is different. Like if the farmer has their own mill, 
it's much easier for them to do it cheaper because um, they don't have to send the coffee, you know, 10 hours to another state to mill the coffee. So that's kind of how uh, the traceability works. But um, some other things that's kind of easy when you uh, work directly with farmers is, uh, I mean, we're known for having very consistent quality and that's because we're buying from the same farmers every year. So um, even though, you know, it's a natural product, um, you have sun exposure, more rain, less rain. Some years we have actually had coffees that didn't um, kind of match the quality from the previous years. But um, once the producers know how to produce coffee uh, and do it well, uh, the quality will still be quite good. It's just maybe it lacks a little bit of intensity or something like that. But uh, so that's kind of one of the things that I think is uh, the best part of working close with farmers is that we do get consistent quality and I know what to expect. I kind of know the coffees. And also I don't have to rush to the cupping table, it's called the ra race to the table. <clears throat> if, you're, um, if you're a cherry picker, like a lot of coffee buyers can be, um, that means you go to an origin and you travel around, you cup as many coffees as you can and you pick the best one. Great, you know, <laughs> that's one strategy. Uh, but what if someone was there the week before you and picked the best ones, you know? So this is kind of a, the race to the cupping table that I'm not so interested in. So I prefer to kind of establish some long-term relationships so that you get create some loyalty, uh, not just based on what we pay, but also because the producers see a value of having that relationship. And that's why this is difficult in Kenya because you're working with you know, uh, an elected board of a cooperative and not directly with 500 farmers. Um, that's the way it is. But if you work with one farmer, it's a little bit easier. And then, uh, you know, uh, we're a small company. I'm just one person. We can't afford to have two green bars. Solberg & Hansen, for instance, which is a Norwegian big roaster, or much bigger than us. I think they buy at over a thousand tons a year. We buy 55 tons a year but they have two green buyers. And uh, that just says, you know, we have one <laughs> and um, that's me. But we couldn't kind of afford to hire one to, to do that job. So that's why I kind of do it. Um, but so I only have a certain amount of time, so I can't be traveling to all the different origins that have great coffee. I mean, there's plenty of origins that has better or not better, but different coffees than we buy. But uh, I realized very early on that I cannot, you know, be on the road for two, three hundred days a year. So um, for me, it's important to just work with a few and then try to diversify what they can offer. So that's why we plant different varieties and stuff on the farms, so we can have different flavors from from each farm, which is a headache for you guys <laughs> when we have uh, many different lots and uh, varieties, and some of them sound similar. Yeah. yeah. Like, can be. Do. <laughs> <laughs> like the Katura and Katuron from... Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> that was a nightmare. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's a bit lazy maybe, but uh, that's also a rational thing when you're a small company, you can't mm. really go and travel that much. I mean, we could easily go upstairs to Nordic Approach and buy yeah. plenty of different coffees. But I want to know the people I buy from. That's as simple as it is. So you're not looking uh, into any new regions? 
Uh, not at the moment. Uh, and that's just because uh, in Colombia we only buy 150 bags per year. Mm. We can increase that to 220 maybe. That's what they have space for in a container when you do vacuum yeah. packing. And it's a bit the same in Honduras. We could increase the volumes in each container before we go to other or origins. Ethiopia, we are also trying to do the same. Um, we're, and Kenya, we're almost at a full container now. So what we're kind of planning to do is to just increase Ethiopia and then increase Colombia and then uh, maximize Honduras as well. So we actually have a, we do have a plan to how big we want to be based on how many containers we're going to buy from each place. Yeah. Simple and easy. And for me, I don't really need to grow more than that. Maybe we could add another origin, but who knows? Could be the same origin, but a different farm. Mm. Um, it will take some years before our farm produces that much. So I think uh, that could be a solution as well. I mean, but, but when we go around and it's not like hypothetical, if you was to uh, expand now, what do you see in a farmer that you want to work with? Do you assess the personality <laughs> or? Uh, or is it just the green? <laughs> yeah, coffee? I mean, f f how I found the farmers that I work with now is most of them through Cup of Excellence, which for those of you who don't know, it's a auction system. It's kind of a competition for farmers. They can submit samples of their coffee and then it's evaluated blindly by international jury. And then the coffees that get a certain amount of points get auctioned on online. And uh, we bought some coffees, Nascimento and Los Pirineos, on those auctions, and then visited the farms afterwards. So that's kind of how we met them. And I met the Caballeros kind of in that system because they always came to the Cup of Excellence when I was a jury there. And I just connected with them personally. Like, they were nice people, and their farms had good potential, and uh, they had a lot of coffee. With uh, Elias, Elias is in Colombia. Uh, I actually met him, we were on a trip in Colombia in 2007 and uh, together with Morten from Nordic Approach, he worked for Solberg and Hansen then. Um, and we were traveling to many regions uh, together with Alejandro, the exporter we still work with. Um, and we visited, uh, among them we visited was Elias, uh, and we, but we visited his farm in Acevedo, which we never bought from. Uh, it's two hours away from Finca Tamala. He still has the farm, but um, it wasn't until five years later when he bought the Tamala that we started working with him. And that's just because the farm in Acevedo, for me, th that coffee didn't have the potential. Uh, the altitude wasn't great. Um, infrastructure wasn't great. I mean, you can always improve that, but the farm was also a little bit small. But when he bought Tamala, I knew that you could get good coffee in that area because I had been buying coffee from that area. And uh, the farm was huge to be a Colombian. It's 50-something hectares. And uh, I knew Elias. I met him many times. And I knew he was the, that he was a great person like that I could trust. So when he wanted to work with me, you know, it's a no-brainer. And then, you, I mean, it's kind of like dating. You, you start dating a little bit and see if it works out. If it doesn't, you know, that's it. You find another one. And that's happened also. I used to buy in Brazil. I don't do that anymore. It just didn't fit our profile. Um, lovely people and everything. It's just we we found it hard to sell the coffee. And um, there's also been other farmers that we have been buying from in Colombia. 
that we don't do anymore. And that's basically just because they didn't see the value of improving. <laughs> uh, Elias definitely sees the value of improving. So, um, and I mean, we started working with him 10 years ago and the coffee back then, the first year was not good. <laughs> it was maybe like 83 points. And then uh, we have gradually uh, been able to improve it. And now it's like on average 86. And uh, there are some better lots, of course, some worse, but um, the quality is very, very consistent from year to year, I think. And um, yeah, you have to define quality as well, what you're actually looking for. Like, yeah, maybe it's not the most expressive coffee in the world, but uh, it's really, really good quality. And you notice when you cup it next to other Colombian coffees, there's something in the texture and it's so smooth and sweet that a lot of other coffees, they don't have that kind of mouthfeel which for me is important. Uh, some other benefits before we start talking a little bit more how we work with farms is <clears throat> when you kind of work like this, for instance, now I got uh, many samples from Los Pirineos and I kind of know what to expect. You know, I know the coffees quite well. Um, so for me, I don't really need to work too much on the roast profile when I do sample roasting. Uh, for me, I just need to get the coffees developed and. I can taste because I know what kind of qualities they can produce. If it's a totally new farm, you don't really know. <laughs> so if you taste a little herbalness, you might start doubting, oh, didn't I roast the coffee well enough or, you know, something like that. So I, I think at least over the years for us, it's been much easier to both develop roast profiles downstairs. Uh, we roast the same coffees year after year. Of course, we can't use the same profile from one year to another, but it's similar. And also, when I cup the coffees that we test, it's easy to see if it's developed or not, because I kind of know what to expect. And uh, this is one of the things that I th see a lot of roasters are doubting all the time, because they, let's say they buy uh, the Catuai from the Caballeros, and they expect it to be very fruity. So they you know, try and tweak the roast and work a lot to try to get that, but this is not a very fruity coffee. <laughs> So you're kind of buying cho chocolate cake, ex expecting it to taste like a uh, strawberry cake, you know, yeah. it's a different thing. So I think it's, that's one of the things that has made our company, uh, the reputation is that we have very consistent quality and uh, from year to year. And this is kind of one of the reasons or main reasons. So are you working with, uh, or when you want to improve the quality of the coffee, like uh, you mentioned before, like the farm was not consistent in quality. Yeah. How would you improve the quality? Like, is there anything you could do as a buyer or <clears throat> is it? Um... Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a big question. Yes, it is. I'll get into that, but I'll also answer because you asked me, Daniel, how do you find the people? Well, uh, if you track it even back before that, uh, first you have to find your origin, like which origin to work in. Because there's a lot of good coffee in Africa. There's a lot of good coffee in Central America, in Indonesia, in India. So for me, it was just a matter of, uh, I want to work closely with the farmers. So I need to find a place where you have single farmers that can produce a small amount or at least enough for us to be able to buy direct. Um, and also flavor-wise, like um, there's a reason why I don't work in Nicaragua. Not that they don't have good coffee there, but I just f 
at least when I started looking for origins, I just found the Honduran coffees to be much better. Maybe today, you know, that can change, but um, and at least that's what it was back then. So for me, like Kenya, Ethiopia is a no-brainer. <laughs> coffees are great. And uh, Honduras, for me, is the best origin in Central America. Um, El Salvador is kind of our Brazilian alibi. Those coffees are very different, and um, but I think very high quality. And then Colombia is also, for me, a no-brainer. Like, you can find so many different coffees there. But um, you asked how, how we actually <clears throat> work with farmers. Hmm. Every farm is different, so you kind of have to start where it's most important. Uh, with Tamana, it's the kind of the farm where we have done the most work, um, and also Nascimento. And uh, we have kind of worked on improving the picking, uh, implemented hand sorting of cherries after picking, uh, looked at the process, how can that be improved with the equipment they had, but also uh, recommended uh, what type of equipment they should invest in when they expand. Because uh, both farms started with small production and are kind of expanding. Um, then one of the most important things for us is drying. Um, we did some experiments in 2011 or 10, or I don't remember. Uh, with the Caberos, where we took one batch of coffee and dried it in many different ways. It was like mechanical drying, patio drying, raised beds, raised beds in shade, raised beds inside a greenhouse. And uh, we cut those coffees, not just immediately, but throughout the whole year. And we could quickly see after a couple of months that some coffee started to age, some tasted fresh even after a year. So this is kind of a one of the most important things we've done on most of the farms we buy from. So you see at Los Pirineos, they do shade drying. That's because we asked for it. Uh, at Tamana, all the coffees are dried in shade. Uh, Caballeros also do shade drying. Um, Nascimento does the same. But the dryers look a little bit different. And also some of them do different drying techniques because they produce more coffee than we can buy. And then uh, you start looking at how they store the coffee. Um, Traditionally, coffee, after it's dried, it's stored in jute bags. And in Colombia, where it rains every day, that means the moisture will increase. So it's much better to keep them in sealed plastic bags or grain pro bags, as we call them. And this also you know, greatly improves the shelf life. Um, I can. We had actually a roast workshop here before the pandemic, where we tasted three, um, three vintages of uh, Tamana coffee. So that means three different harvests, uh, three years apart. And none of the roasters who were here, including myself, could tell the difference in terms of age. They all tasted fresh. And that's just because we, we do the drying and shade slowly, even drying, to a moisture level that's you know safe. <laughs> and depends on the moisture meter, but below 11% at least, preferably a little bit lower. Um, uh, then we... Um, pack them in grain pro bags immediately after drying. And then once we kind of decide which one lots to buy, it's packed in vacuum bags, shipped to Norway, and stored in st stable conditions. So also like looking at the warehouse, Tamala, they used to send the coffee to Pital, which is the closest town, but it's super hot there. And then they drove it to Garzón, which is half an hour longer to drive. So that means more risk for them because the, having coffee on the car on the road is risky. But the warehouse was much better. 
insulated, so not so warm. But now they have a warehouse on the farm, which is also risky. But the farm is much cooler in climate. So that means the coffee is stored in a much better condition. And then <clears throat> we look at uh, like milling. Where, we, where do we send the coffee after we have decided to buy it? Because we need to remove the parchment. Uh, we need to sort the beans, like take out the defects, like with the color sorter that we have downstairs. It's the same in origin, but just with green beans. Um, then we do screen sorting, like different size. You've probably seen already that we have two different screens on the Tamana coffee. And we do that because they roast more evenly when you do it like that. Um, and um, so that's important. And it needs to be a mill that's not too big. Because <laughs> then, uh, uh, you know, just to rinse the machinery it takes a lot of coffee. Um, but it can't be too small either. <laughs> then it's too slow. And uh, they all need to, it needs to have like good systems for so that they don't mix up lots. And uh, they can also do vacuum packing. Um, and yeah, so it needs to be kind of a specialized mill. There are plenty of different mills in Colombia. You can pick and choose, but not, not that many really good ones. So that's one thing we look at. And of course, uh, making sure that we communicate with the exporter uh, fast so that we can get the coffees out fast. It's really important because um, you don't want to get it stuck you know, somewhere. For instance, in Honduras, they have like a fruit export every May, June. So you kind of want to uh, ship the coffees either before that or after that. Otherwise, it just gets stuck in the port and it's 40 degrees and you know nothing happens. So that's always a concern there. And then, of course, one of the most important things that I didn't, didn't mention is lot separation. And uh, I know that's a headache for you as well. <laughs> but, <laughs> like uh, with Tamana this year, we have Katura and Varidad Colombia, which is uh, a blend of Katura and Varidad Colombia. We have lot one and lot two, and then we have screen 15, 16, and screen 17 and up in both lots. So that means four different lot, lot batches of uh, coffee from the same varieties. Mm -hmm. But we do this because um, one is picked in June, one is picked in July. One uh, might have slightly higher moisture content, one might have sl uh, slightly lower. And with Nascimento, we also have like lot one, two, three, four, five of Pacas, and that's based on when they were picked. So some were picked in February, some in March, April, May, and so on. And uh, it goes without saying that if you mix coffee picked in July with coffee picked in January, you know, the coffee picked in January is going to affect the coffee picked in July. So that's why we started doing that. And also when we buy coffee, like uh, when I bought Tamana coffee last season, we got 80 different samples. Uh, each sample represents a small batch of coffee from their farm. So that means a daily picking can also be like two or three days mixed together. And the, the reason why we want them to separate it is because if they have done something wrong, we can easily just take that out and it won't affect the rest of the coffee. If they just blended it like they did before, you know, one batch might ruin everything. So keeping it separate, and then I will roast it here on the smallest sample roasters, cup them, and then because the lots are so small, I need to blend them. <laughs> and that's just because if it's 200 kilos of Katura, uh, sending that to the mill you know, and packing it separately and everything, it's a headache. And it becomes expensive and also 
pointless because maybe 40 of the lots taste more or less the same. Some of them are picked early, some of them are picked late. So we mix them kind of based on quality, moisture content, and when they were picked. And that's how we kind of create slightly bigger lots and why we only have lot one and two and not 40. So um, that's the kind of how we work together with the farmer. It's not like I go down and tell them what to do. This is work we do together to look, you know, and you don't change everything in, at once. You have to start with something. And maybe next year you see that working well, you start implementing something new. And uh, that's important, I think, not to kind of <laughs> jump in with all, all legs uh, at the same time. Um, because it, it's also, I wouldn't say risky, but back then I didn't really know if it will you know, affect the quality positively. So we had to be a little bit careful. Today I have much more experience with it, so it would be easier and faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Any questions regarding that or? Um, so the, the moisture content that you mentioned in the different lots, because that's the thing that actually like uh, affects us when we roast mm. is uh, how much moisture there is. So does that depend on the drying process or <clears throat> is it something like inherently in the in the beans? Yeah, uh, good question, because um, most beans have uh, moisture content between 50 and 55 percent when they're picked. I think <laughs> that's what I've been told by the researchers at Seneca Fair. We can probably find that in some of the books, but I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> um, and then you need to dry it down to like 10 percent. But if it's between 50 and 55 when you start, and then you will want to go down to 10 on average. Some might be 8, some might be 13. So this is why we do, uh, on some of the farms, we do soaking. Some of them have stopped doing it. Um, and the theory with the soaking is that you uh, kind of equalize the moisture content in the beans because you let the beans soak in clean water for like 24 hours before you dry them. So this is after you process and before you dry. And um, the idea was to kind of equalize the moisture content so that it's the same before you start drying. I'm not sure if this actually happens. Um, there's some uh, good research saying that it doesn't, but uh, who knows. Um, but uh, we just find that soaked coffee tastes a little bit more closed in the beginning and then opens up a little bit later, uh, but it stays fresh for a much longer time. So. Uh, um, this can be one theory, but um, in general, I think because we dry slowly on the shades, the coffees are dried very evenly because they're also rotated throughout the day. And then you can, of course, if you're eager, <laughs> take the coffee in a little bit too early, then you have high moisture content. And uh, this happens all the time with farmers. There's a lot of times I get samples with too high moisture content. Let's say it's 12%, then I will not buy it because um, the risk of it fading, meaning it will taste woody when it arrives to Norway, is very, very high. So for me, I have a, a certain mo moisture meter. And the standard there is like I try not to buy coffees above 11%. It's okay if it's 11.1 or 11.2. Then I will just check the water activity as well. The water activity is below 0.55, which is very often is with the 
evenly dried coffees, uh, then it's okay. But um, um, if the moisture is 8.5%, then it's fine. Uh, I can buy that. It's a little bit different to roast, <laughs> but uh, I know that the shelf life will, will stay for longer. And uh, we buy normally coffees between 9 and 10.5%. Um, that's where we prefer it to be. But when I say that, <clears throat> uh, moisture meters are different. So it's like you're measuring with uh, Celsius, and then another one is me measuring with Fahrenheit. But most people don't know this. They think moisture is moisture, but they are calibrated differently. So you really need to understand your moisture meter to know where you should be. So for example, my moisture meter, uh, nine to 10.5%, on a different one, it could be you know 10 to 12. <laughs> it's the same, it's just reading different numbers. So. The drying is actually a result of what the farmer has done. And sometimes if the, like with the Khalid from Echemo this year, the coffees tasted amazing, but they had a little bit higher moisture. So I just asked him to take the coffee out for one more day to dry it in the sun and then repack it. And that helped. The moisture level came down, the coffee still tastes good. So you can do that. That's no problem. But it really affects the roasting. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, measuring it is a good idea because then you kind of know where to start with the roaster, at least with our roaster. Um, higher moisture content obviously need more energy. It's as simple as that. There's more water inside. Do you synchronize your, your moisture meter with the farmers? Uh, not really. <clears throat> uh, I, I, they always measure moisture. So normally when they send samples, they send the information of the lot, uh, when it was harvested, where it's from what kind of moisture level they measured. Some of them do water activity as well. And then I can see on my moisture meter where we're at. So um, we don't really communicate my number that much, but uh, I also know that you know if they have that number, normally I'm you know half a point above or below or something like that. But I always measure, like you have to do that. Um, and sometimes I will, for instance, with Elias, he started drying his coffee to 10% on his moisture meter, but that was too high because he has a very different moisture meter. So we had to kind of uh, measure what's the number that he needs to dry to. Uh, and I think it was like 8 or 9% and that was fine. So uh, as long as you know that, then you're fine, you know. Then he knows that I'm not going to reject the coffee or... And it's difficult to sell coffee if it's too moist. But for the farmer also, it's water, you know, uh, 1%. If you produce, say, uh, 1,000 tons, 1% is a little bit of uh, kilos. So most farmers traditionally want the moisture to be high. Yeah. The buyers want it to be low because it's more stable. Yes. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how we <coughs> work with the flavors, because uh, I mentioned that we try to diversify in flavors. And uh, I think uh, most most uh, people who go to farms, they focus mainly on process, because <laughs> it's easy uh, to change, it's fast, and you have immediate results. Like uh, if you take one coffee and you wash it, it will taste clean and sweet and beautiful. And if you do a natural, it will you know taste not like that <laughs> um but you have immediate results and i think you know the myself included I've, i fell in love with this kind of processed flavor in the beginning and now i i'm not a huge fan of it um but i think a lot of coffee people 
uh, are excited about that at the moment. It's very trendy. So for me, we don't really work like that. We prefer to have as clean as possible. So that means washing or like semi-washing at Los Pirineos. They have like a demucellate remover, uh, but it involves uh, water. We do buy a natural in Ethiopia, but then we have to like really look at how can I do that process well so that you get clean coffees. But the way I like to work now is um, uh, more on the agriculture side. So improving the farm, like shade trees, not doing herbicides, um, Planting different varieties is something that we have done with all the farmers we work with. And that really diversifies flavor. But it takes five to ten years. And most people aren't patient enough. So that's the slow, slow uh, part. Normally we'll maybe get a handful of seeds. And uh, I'll give it to Elias, for instance. He plants it in his nursery. Maybe out of 50 seeds, maybe 20 of them came up. And he plants those into a field. And then we have to wait two, three years before they produce. And then we can pick the few cherries that are there, roast it, taste it, if it's good. Say, yeah, maybe. And then we do the same the next year. And then after five years, you'll know, is this something we want to plant more of or no? And then if it's yes, we take cherries or all the seeds we have from that, those few trees, and then we plant more. And then it's another four or five years before we have a production. So that's why you see now <clears throat> we are starting to get the Java from um, Tamana this year. was the first year. Katuron, the same. Uh, we had SL28 for a few years. This year we don't have it because it was stumping the trees and a lot of them died. Um, but we are starting to get more and more different varieties from different farmers. And uh, I think we'll get some geisha this year from Nascimento, Ooh, which nice. uh, should be very nice, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, so... You know, it takes time, but uh, once you get it, you get, you know, fantastic coffees. And uh, I don't have to go to auction and pay $300 per pound for it, which is a little bit expensive, I think. Uh, because it's not necessarily more expensive to produce. It's just more air. So that's kind of uh, how we work now in long term to, to make sure that we, we have interesting coffees. And <clears throat> even if you see... If you follow us uh, online, you see that we sell Nascimento for maybe eight months, but it's not the same coffee for eight months. It's different lots. Uh, of course, it can be the same variety, but it's different lots from different parts of the farm, and some taste more intense than the others. Some are picked later, some are picked earlier. So um, for me, that's interesting. You know, <laughs> Like a wine importer will have many different cuvées from one producer. That's kind of how we work as well. How much variation can one expect from uh, from one farm or from different lots? It really depends. Like, um, uh, let's use Colombia because I am there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we can also use Kenya. Like uh, in Kenya, if you have SL28 or SL34 or Ruiru11 or mm. Batian, yeah, they taste a little bit different, but they're quite similar. Yeah. And it's just, just because genetically they're very similar. And Ruiru 11 and Batiana, you know, they used SL28 to develop it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the same in Colombia. You have Katura. That's kind of the traditional non-resistant variety there. And then you have uh, Castillo and Varedal Colombia. But they're more or less the same. Like Castillo and Varedal Colombia are more or less the same. 
it's Hybridele Timor crossed with Katura. And then it's just different generations and selections of that. So genetically, it's very similar. And that's also why the flavor is quite similar. I can taste the difference between <clears throat> Castillo and Katura and Varidad Colombia from Tamala in most cases. But sometimes I can't because they can be very, very similar. So the Katura and Varidad Colombia for me, normally I more, normally I prefer the Varidad Colombia because it's better quality. And that's just because the Katura normally has leaf rust. And that means the tree is struggling to produce good quality cherries. Uh, but when the Katura is really high quality, it can be marginally better than Varidad Colombia. But it's still kind of the same brown sugar flavors, this kind of. But if you take um, Caballero, for instance, they have Geisha, which obviously tastes very different from the Katwai, but they still have some similarities. They have this kind of herbal flavor. Um, also, their SL28 is not so expressive as you can find in Kenya, for instance. So it really depends on the farm and also the variety. And of course, if they planted Robusta, it would taste completely different. So <clears throat> some of the cultivars that we have planted some places taste awful. So it's like, no, we don't want to plant that. But um, and some of them taste subtle and, you know, delicate, and some are very intense. Um, so it really depends. I think uh, we'll see more variation when we get more shade on the farms, because um, at least some of the rare kind of old varieties, they at least the theory is that they like shade more. <laughs> than the more modern hybrids, because the, like Katura was selected to grow in full sun, no shade, with Castillo as well. So, um, yeah, Atamana, the Bourbon is great now, but I think it will be even better when we have shade over it, because it will ripen slower. And that's, uh, that's the plan, at least. Cool. Any questions about the farm? I thought I would talk a little bit about the logistics as well, because uh, that can be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <clears throat> Do you know how many farms you buy from? Oh. Um, trying to count. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like well, 10? I, I don't know. Yeah, it depends on how you look at it. We buy, we buy from five origins. Uh, so we have Finca Tamala in Colombia. We have Los Pirineos in um, El Salvador. And then we buy from two farms in Honduras, Nacimento and the Caballero family. So that's four farms. And then in Kenya, we buy from several cooperatives. So I guess we can add maybe four or five there. And then from Ethiopia, we at least last year, we bought from three. But this year, it looks like we're only buying from two. So there's a handful of farms. And uh, But we do, I looked at the numbers from our storage from last year and we had throughout the year we had around 60 to 70 lots from all these places so it's quite a many different coffees some of them are you know marginally different some of them are quite different and the average kind of size of the lot is 10 to 15 bags some are some are a little bit bigger some are a little bit smaller so for instance the geisha honey from Cabrera, we have two bags not even that we have 60 kilos that's less than one bag, actually. One bag there is 69 kilos. And um, the geisha from uh, Los Pirineos, we had 30 kilos or something. Yes. <laughs> or was it 24? 
<clears throat> so, and then the tamana lots can be, you know, 40 bags, depending. But we don't really call it micro lots because uh, it doesn't really tell anything. We try not to use these kind of words like specialty coffee or direct trade or micro lots because it, it's not really describing anything. A micro lot can be anything from one bag to 200 bags, you know. Uh, depends on the size of the roster. So, um, uh, but in general, we buy around 55 tons per year, which is, I think we're getting close to <clears throat> 900 bags of coffee per year. And this is small. <laughs> this is less than uh, what the biggest roaster in Norway roast in one day. So that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel so small. No. <laughs> You know, if you start a small roastery, a lot of roasters in Norway have started in the last 10 years. They start in a small garage and uh, there's like one guy or one girl that roasts after work uh, just for fun. And then they start selling a little bit and then they grow a little bit. And then, But uh, they normally have small roasters and not they don't sell a lot of coffee. So they would be called small roasters. I think in that sense, I would be called a small to medium roaster. Because a medium roaster is normally much bigger than us, and uh, a large roaster, you know. And then you have the mega, mega large roasters. So it's really undefinable, I think. And, uh, but most roasters our size, most of them don't travel that much and buy direct. And that's just because it's expensive, takes time. And because you can't fill full containers, it's logistically a little bit more expensive. And... Um, so that's why Nordic Approach, like above us, they're selling a lot to roasters like that or like us. Uh, because then a roaster can come to Tayen and then during their spring cupping, they can select, you know, from uh, 50, 60, 70, 100 different lots and then select, you know, one Rwandan coffee, one Kenyan coffee, one Ethiopian. And there's nothing wrong in that. Um, they work really well upstairs. Um, it's just a very different way of doing it. And as I said in the beginning, I need to know where the coffee is from, who produced it, you know, I need to know that they are, you know, good people, that they're treating their workers well and so on. <clears throat> so in each country, we kind of work with farmers and then we also have exporters. Um, when I say we have, we, we don't own them. We work or buy or use exporters as a service. Uh, exporters, they normally uh, facilitate the logistics like I said drive the coffee to the mill making sure the coffee is milled well following up on that the quality of the milling is where it should be um, um, packing the coffee preparing papers shipping the coffee so on take care of the payment so I pay them they pay the farmer that's normally how it works uh, then sometimes we use importers and uh, in Ethiopia for instance we actually use an importer but we kind of use them more as an exporter. <laughs> uh, it's the Belco company, the French company. They are based in France, but um, they have an office in Ethiopia. And uh, they help me a lot to not only find the farmers we buy from, but also handling samples, logistics down there, payments. It's really a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to kind of have someone on, on the ground. Um, and But I would still say that we buy most of our coffees direct, although in that case, we have yet another kind of middleman because each farmer is also an exporter. So Tatmara and HMO, uh, which is Negusi and Khalid, they actually have export licenses. 
but they're not used to handling milling and stuff like that. Uh, so that's why we use Belco to help them do that. And then Belco will ship the coffee for us. But I write contracts with Negusia and Khalid with them. All the, everything is transparent. So that's kind of how we work there. And also, <clears throat> like Khalid, he doesn't speak English, so Belko is communicating for me. So that's kind of uh, how it works for us. And um, uh, the, the, the downside of it is that it takes a lot of money. Because <laughs> uh, at like in August, September, we'll have coffee worth, you know, 600,000 euros in storage and that money needs to come from somewhere so sometimes we need financing from the bank and you pay interest on that other times we don't depends really on the cash flow and everything but uh, that's also a re big reason why smaller roasters cannot work like that because you you're tying up a lot of money and uh, that's difficult i suppose the risk is higher as well yeah for sure like um for instance, one container now from Kenya is uh, 170,000 euros. And there's no guarantee that that coffee will arrive well, you know. And although we can have insurance and stuff, it's really difficult to prove that the coffee is, you know, ruined if it's just slightly baggy or something like that. Because an insurance broker will not be a good copper. Uh, so this is risky for sure. And, uh, like at the moment, we had to reject 60 bags from a producer because the pre-shipment sample was not the same as the offer sample. And what I mean with that is that when they sent me the first sample of the coffee, saying this is the coffee we have can offer you, please uh, taste the sample and see, see if you want it. And then I roast it, cup it, say yes, let's uh, do that. And then they have to send the coffee to the mill. The coffee gets milled. After milling, they will send a pre-shipment sample to me so that I can roast and evaluate to see, check if the milling is okay according to our standards and also to check if the coffee is okay. And in this case, there's obviously been a mix-up, so it's a different coffee. Like, it's full of defects and it tastes like peanut butter instead of fruit and flowers, <laughs> which is really, really sad. And um, hopefully they can find the original coffee, uh, but I fear that there is no trade. That's the reality of it. And uh, this is very, very rare. It's happened only twice with us. Um, but it means we don't get the coffee we need. And uh, the farmer also that don't get to sell the coffee for the price that we had agreed. He can still sell the coffee, but this is obviously not a good coffee anymore. So uh, this is challenging. Yeah. But that's also the risk. If you don't control the milling and everything, that's what can happen. It happened another time where the miller actually stole the coffee we had bought and replaced it with something else uh, because he was in desperate need of money and he wanted to sell the good coffee for a good price uh, to another person. We discovered it and also the farmer uh, discovered the, you know, what had happened. And unfortunately, they were very good friends, and obviously now the friendship was broken. So there's uh, things that can happen for sure. <clears throat> so when we receive samples, it's normally, like I said, like with Tamana, we can get 80 samples. And I have to be honest that I don't evaluate all of them physically because I know how they're produced. 
And that's one of the beauties. Like I don't really have to go deep down to check if it's good quality. I know how it's produced. I know how it's dried. As long as the moisture is okay, water activity is okay. I cup the coffees. I cup many cups. So normally I will cup preferably three times, three different times, and uh, at least two to three cups every time. And we, the reason why we do many cups is to see if there's any defects. It can be like phenolic, which tastes like fungus. It can be mold, it can be you know ferment, something like that. Then we normally will reject the coffee. Um, but uh, because these samples represent small amounts, it's okay to reject one or two coffees, you know. And then uh, the reason why I cup several times is because maybe one day I don't feel too good <laughs> and I don't want to make important decisions because I'm in a bad mood or, you know, something like that. Uh, and especially because it's the farmer's livelihood. It's, let's say I was slightly sick or something and I didn't find any of them to taste good and I said, no, we will not buy anything. That can be devastating. So that's why we make sure to cup it several times. And if I'm unsure if the roast is too light or too dark, I will roast it again and taste it again. And I normally put some reference on the table as well. Uh, another coffee that I know well, so I can just compare. So, um, yeah, we receive the samples. I look at the moisture and everything. We roast them. Um, sometimes I will check. I, I just briefly look at the green beans. I always do that. But sometimes if I'm in doubt and I see that there's some defects, I will start to sort out. And this is what happened with the coffee I just spoke about. There were too many defects, like 30 grams on 300 grams. So that's 10%, which is... Um, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. We don't buy coffees like that. <laughs> <laughs> and the original sample didn't have it. Um, so, but, you know, when you know how the coffee is produced, it's not that important to, like, really go through. Uh, it's enough to taste it and check the moisture. Uh, a lot of people ask me what rose profile I use for the samples. And, uh, you know, I don't really fuss too much about it. I have some profiles for each producer because I roast them the same coffees every year. But I'm not, it's not the point to have the best possible roast, you know. You're just developing the coffee and evaluating the sample. Of course, the geisha could be more intense and blah, blah, blah. But I know these coffees so well, so I'm looking for a little bit different things when I, when I cup the coffees. And um, for instance, if, if I cup uh, <clears throat> the geishas from Caballero, of course I look for intensity, but uh, the mouthfeel needs to be smooth and clean, and the coffee needs to be sweet, uh, no kind of harshness or astringency. Um, and that's kind of, if I know that all those things are good, I know the coffee is going to taste good when it arrives. Because when they're fresh, they can be a little closed and green. And This happens a lot with Kenyan coffees. Uh, a lot of times when I'm in Kenya and we cup through many coffees, everyone's complaining that oh, this year the quality is bad because <laughs> it's not enough fruit flavor. Or That's normally because the coffees are very closed. Um, and the same in Ethiopia. After a few months, they open up and they taste much more fruity. And, and the danger is that if you find a coffee in Kenya that's really, really open and fruity and everything else is very kind of green and closed, and you buy that coffee, it's probably from what they call the fly crop, which is a early crop, normally September, October, and it's not from the main crop. That's from oh. later on the year. So that 
it can be quite risky because that coffee might fade faster. Yeah. Not necessarily, but it might happen. But the so the defects in a coffee they will appear uh, no matter how the roast is. <clears throat> kind of. Uh, not not if it's too dark. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um. I would say that uh, so there are many different defects. Uh, like I said, mold can be very weak, mm. and if you if the roast is slightly too dark, it can be quite difficult to pick up. Uh, the same with ferment. A slight ferment can be, uh, you know, delicious, um, but it can also be like fruity. Uh, if it's too light, you might not taste it at all because it's just malty and cereal. So, for instance, if uh, if it's a low quality coffee, like immature or something, normally it will have like a nutty cereal flavor. But also, high quality coffee can have that same flavor if it's roasted too light. So you you kind of have to evaluate the roast as well for sure. Um, but it's quite easy to take on smell, and if I'm in doubt, I will just roast it again. Uh, some other defects like phenol, it, it can also be very weak, but it's for me at least almost always extremely strong. Uh, so that's easy to pick out, uh, not necessarily on smell, but um, on taste. And uh, like uh, a, a very over-fermented bean, you will smell it immediately because it smells like a intense natural processed coffee, funk. <laughs> and um, the problem is like when you buy wash coffees, if one cup is like that and the rest is not, it might just be one bean, you never know. But then you will reek up more cups to see is this something that appears more often or was it just that one cup? But, um, you know, most people don't roast that dark when they do sample roasts. So um, it's quite easy to pick out if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. So that's actually one of the <clears throat> most educational things that I've done is to do a defect cupping at the SEA many years ago. And uh, I learned, you know, what's ferment, what's phenol, uh, what's mold, uh, what's woody, what's baggy. Because uh, that's... You know, for some people, confusing. For me, baggy is like when it tastes like bag from the coffee, a jute bag. Can a coffee that has been vacuum packed can taste like bag, believe it or not. So it's kind of a, like an aging process in the coffee. Can also come in like if the coffee is a little bit too moist and stuff like that. Woody is something that every coffee will get eventually. Some get it very fast, some get it very slow, but depends on how it's produced. So we, let's say we dry the coffee really, really fast in a mechanical dryer or in a, like a greenhouse, then um, most likely that coffee will have a very, very short shelf life and taste woody after like two months, maybe even faster. But uh, when you do the slow drying, uh, this prolongs the shelf life, so that woodiness doesn't appear until you know 16 months maybe, and then it doesn't happen like overnight, it happens gradually. So um, this is why it's so important for me to know how the coffee is produced, because then I can take the risk if it's the if it's slightly high moisture or something. So also when the coffee's come, you know, you have to measure the moisture. <laughs> Things change, even though we have vacuum packed the coffee. So we always try to use the coffee that's the highest moisture first. And uh, if they're all equal, we'll start with the one that was harvested first, obviously. that's. So that's why it's difficult sometimes to understand the logic, why we are using this lot before that, because uh, you kind of have to know the coffees a little bit. <laughs> but um, 
when I, when I cut the coffees, you kind of also need to know a little bit what to look for. And this is very personal. So, for instance, if you, uh, Marn, if you had a roastery and were buying coffees from the same producers that I'm buying from, you might not choose the same coffees. Because maybe you would prefer uh, a different, slightly different uh, taste profile. Um, maybe even a different process. That's fine. So for me, it's <clears throat> since it's my name on the bag, I have to kind of buy the coffees. Um, and um, for me, it's very clear what I'm looking for. And I actually have notes from each farm, like remember to look for this when, when I cup, because I only cup the coffees once a year when I'm buying. So the Katwaii from Caballero, for instance, I'm looking for like this really rich mouthfeel and like heavy sweetness. Uh, should also be maybe some fruit and good acidity, but I try to avoid the coffees that are very high in acidity and low body. They, they are delicious, but this is not why I buy the coffees. <laughs> I'm buying that coffee specifically to have a rich, sweet, chocolatey coffee for our customers and for myself. And if I want uh, lighter body, high fruit, floral, then you know, buy Ethiopian <laughs> because they're much more intense in that category. So, but you know, there's no right or wrong. It's just the way it works. And the same with naturals, like you brought a natural. I didn't taste it yeah. yet. No, are you sure? <laughs> this is from your project in Uganda. Yeah. And obviously you will tell me that this is a very clean natural. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like it. Exactly. Did Every you like it? Uh, I don't like it. You don't? No, no, I'm not a fan of naturals. You have been trained well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I liked naturals before I uh, started working here. Yeah. But uh, after... Well, wait until we get a good natural. No, mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I actually smell this bag and it actually smelled really good. So I just didn't try it yet. Um, but um, every roaster will come with their natural and say, oh, mm -hmm. you have to, you're going to like this because it's really clean natural. And then I taste it and it's like, this is the definition of unclean. <laughs> <laughs> so it really depends on the, your personal uh, preference. Like clean natural for me should have no kind of flavor of Quakers. And that's partially why we also have a color sorter to take out the Quakers because in naturals you have more Quakers because you're not necessarily sorting the cherries with water because why would you put cherries in water before you dry them? So you do have some undeveloped and slight unripe uh, or yeah, beans in, in that mix. <clears throat> uh, so no, none of that flavor because I think, you know, fruitiness is nice, but with peanuts in the aftertaste not so nice. So that's what the first thing that I look for when I buy naturals. And uh, I don't want the fruit to be overly overripe, like towards rotten, like that's not my preference. So I prefer it more like when it's more like peachy and uh, like perfectly ripe strawberries, not overripe strawberries. And that's a, kind of what I'm looking for if I'm buying a natural. And for instance, in Colombia, it's really difficult to achieve this because at least at Tamana, the climate is just too moist. So it's maybe like two, three weeks a year where they can produce it, where they have just full sun all day. But um, normally it rains almost every day there. So those naturals become a little too funky for me. Yeah. But then you have Jamie upstairs who works for Nordic <laughs> Approach who just cannot, it cannot be funky enough. So, you know, it's different things. And it's a little bit the same with honey process for me. It's... Uh, we do buy some honey process, but they need to be, you know, 
yeah, you can still taste a little bit of that pulpiness in them, but it shouldn't be the dominant flavor. Uh, for me, that's not so nice. And uh, we've also bought some yeast fermented coffees from Los Pirineos where they add yeast into the tank, but not where it's dominating the flavor. So that's kind of, I can buy some of that, but I don't want it to be like uh, you put too much ketchup on your foods. <laughs> yeah, the the tatmara <clears throat> is uh, very like delicate, even though it's a yeah a natural. It's uh, it's not very overpowering. No, but you can. It, I mean, there's no doubt that it's a natural. No, <laughs> <laughs> but um, tatmara has been uh, quite a journey. The first year we bought it was amazing, like super crisp and clean and delicate. And then the next year, uh, the coffee was baggy. Uh, so we still bought it, but we sold it as a test roast uh, because we wanted to support Nagusia. Um, uh, and then the third year, which was the well, last one we had, it was kind of uh, fruity and nice, but not as kind of crisp and clean as the previous year. And I just learned actually that he had a lot of trouble with CBD, which is coffee berry disease. It's like a fungus on the coffee trees. Because um, he has coffee inside a forest and it was just too humid and you get a lot of kind of problems with this when it's humid this year i have tasted the new harvest that were i'm just waiting for the pre-shipment sample but the offer sample was amazing back to where it was the first year like super crisp and clean that's just because he had you know dry weather during harvest so he was able to dry the coffee well and no cbd and yeah so i'm looking forward to that but we are <clears throat> hopefully going to support him with a washing station i mean we're not going to buy the whole washing station but the idea is on our 15 year anniversary we'll collect some money in our store and that money will go towards building a washing station on his farm <coughs> then there's less risk of uh, when he has a lot of rain it's difficult to produce naturals so then he had you know he could produce washed coffees with with not the same problems so that's kind of the idea and I've written uh, here to talk about anaerobic coffees, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to learn more about why we don't buy anaerobic coffees, <laughs> you can tune into the episode with Jamie Junkin from Nordic Approach called Funky Coffees. And uh, we can elaborate more on that in that episode. <clears throat> Should we maybe do some final stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I started buying coffee, you know, Twitter was very popular in the in those <laughs> days. Uh, I don't do Twitter anymore, but there was a lot of debating on uh, with coffee people on Twitter before, and it was kind of loose and fun, and uh, of course uh, feisty and fiery, but um, it was all with a good sense of humor. And uh, I remember that we spoke a lot about seasonality in coffee, and oh, coffee is a seasonal product. Yes, it is. They have harvest seasons. Uh, that normally in every country it's you know two three months a year and that's it. In other countries it can be throughout the whole year, depending on where you are. Some people have two harvests a year and so on. But it's still a seasonal product. Um, and then I, because we buy coffee from like a year from Nascimento, we try to have that coffee at least for eight months, maybe nine ten months. Otherwise we wouldn't have any coffee at the moment. <laughs> so um, some. We have gotten critique that, you know, our, our coffee isn't seasonal. No, but it tastes fresh. <laughs> so for me, <clears throat> it's you can have seasonal coffee that tastes woody and, and old. 
easily. And we have had that in the past. That's why we started researching drying, because we would buy fresh crop Colombian coffee and um, Honduran coffee. And then two months later, when it arrived to Norway, it would taste old and woody. It was still in season. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it, the quality wasn't there. So for me, it's more important that the coffee is fresh and tastes good. Uh, which year it was harvested, I don't really care, to be honest. But knowing that shelf life is fragile, we try to kind of get rid of coffee as fast as we can. Um, we, we can't run out, but you know, try to get rid of it. There's a roaster in uh, the US called George Howell who pioneered freezing of green coffee. And that actually works. So I've tasted like vintage Kenyan coffee from him, which tastes amazing. But then you kind of have to freeze it green and then roast it and then that's it. So uh, <clears throat> that's kind of uh, the philosophy now. We, we don't really treat it as a seasonal thing anymore, but we, we try not to sell coffee that tastes woody. I mean, I would remove it and sell it as test roast because it's just not a nice flavor. <laughs> A good sign that it's woody is where people write tobacco on the flavor description. <laughs> that can be uh, at least b maybe baggy. Um, but some coffees can have that flavor, like Indonesian coffees. Um, it can be nice, but it can also be terrible. <laughs> but do you notice any, or do you know if the farmers notice any shifts in, in the seasons now with like changing weather? Climate? <clears throat> yeah, like... Uh... For sure. Are the, the seasons pushing forward, backwards? Yeah, it's changing. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit different from country to country. But um, like last year, the harvest was late in Colombia uh, because of the rain pattern. They had a lot of rain. Um, so if you don't have enough sun, the cherries ripen slower. The quality was great. But, um, but this happens from time to time. Uh, but we do see... <clears throat> One of the things that I've noticed the most is uh, uh, in Colombia, uh, when I went there in 2007, uh, no one spoke about leaf rusts uh, on farms that were above 1600 meters. And two years later, the farm that I bought from at 1700 meters were full of leaf rust. And that was the first time. And that was kind of the outbreak they had in that time when they started pushing planting Castillo because, because it's uh, resistant. So uh, we do see a lot of uh, impact on farms because of climate change. And whether you believe climate change is happening or not, it is changing. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the rain pattern is different. Um, it's more extreme, for sure. Like we had, uh, when I, because I have a farm in Colombia, um, I, we had like two years of El Nino with like no rain. And then now it's been raining, you know, insane amounts of water and you see like floods everywhere and and this happens a little bit more often more intense than before and you especially see it in the tropics because uh, it rains a lot when it first rains and uh, this is one of the reasons why we try to encourage uh, planting shade trees because it's getting hotter and hotter climate means normally lower quality because you get more leaf rusts you know other pests and diseases come faster ripening so planting shades not only sequesters carbon but also helps uh, lower the average temperature for the coffee trees and coffee is a forest plant so it's supposed to grow in shade so i'm 100 percent sure the quality will get better and then it's a matter of how much shade if, if you have too much you also get problems with other fungus 
But I think, you know, trying to establish a better ecosystem on the farms will make them more resilient. And that can be like planting fruit trees, shade trees, and growing beans in the rows with the coffee, if you have the space for that. Uh, stop using herbicides, you know, that's terrible. Because um, you want weeds to grow, because when you cut them, they mm. it's great for the soil. Um, so stuff like that we, we work with. But also we can see not so may maybe so much where we are, but Nascimento actually had the water so shortage in their village. Um, so that's, you know, on the bottom of the mountain where the farm is, where Hopnil uh, lives. When I was there with Marit in 2020, right before the pandemic, they had water shortage for the first time. He has a spring on his farm, so he has a lot of water on the farm, but that's up in the mountain. So he would actually take water from his farm and drive down to his house. And, you know, when I met him in 2010, he did not believe that there would be water shortage because I asked him, you use a lot of water for your process. Maybe we should put in a machine that uses much less water for, for processing the coffee. And he says, ah, oh, no, it doesn't matter. I have plenty of water, you know, and now we're seeing a change. So uh, it is affecting a lot. And we know that, uh, especially now at, uh, in East Africa, in Somalia, and also Ethiopia, that it's been super dry and uh, almost no rain. I think they missed like four rain periods in Somalia. Wow. And that means no food. Yeah. And people are also moving. Um, <clears throat> so this is dangerous, of course. Not just for coffee, but for, yeah. for humanity. So uh, yeah, for sure, there's uh, it implements maybe. I mean, for us, we don't really notice that much. Maybe we have nicer summers, mm -hmm. but um, the people who are affected most by the climate change, as I see it, are the people who live in origin, and people who don't have a lot of money. And um, yeah, this is the sad part. Cool. Anything else we should talk about or? I think I've kind of uh, run through most of it. To kind of summarize a little bit, um, I mean, it, there's a lot of details on how to buy coffee, and I could speak about this, obviously, for many hours. <laughs> but um, I think the key, key uh, things to take away from this session is that uh, quality doesn't happen by itself. Like, yeah, you can go to Colombia, cup thousands of coffees, and find a great one. But maybe next year when I go back, uh, the same farmer will not have the same quality. Um, it can happen for sure, but not by coincidence. So um, making quality is like a system. You have to have quality control. And this is why I started traveling to Origin. We, we have good quality control in the roastery, in the coffee shop. We also need to ha have that at the farm level with the farmers and also at export and milling and everything. That's kind of why we work like this, because we want to have the best coffees in the world. and and then you have to actually do that work. It's there's no way around it. Um, and yeah, maybe you can buy better coffee. Like you can buy Geisha from Panama on auction for like five hundred dollars. Um, and those coffees are spectacular. Um, but I don't know the people <laughs> necessarily. And for me, quality is more than just the flavor in the cup and the aromatics. It's also the texture, sweetness, and knowing that the coffee has been produced well. Obviously, they produce coffee well in Panama, but uh, so that's a bad example. But <clears throat> um, I'm saying that, yeah, quality for me is more than just 
what you taste. It's also what's behind it. And that's kind of the philosophy behind how we buy. Sounds good. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of information, I think. Um, I think one of the um, one of the kind of biggest benefits of working like this we saw during the pandemic because mm. then I wasn't able to go to origin but uh, the farmers we communicate so they send samples they know what coffees I want they know how to produce it it's not like they produce all the coffees they produce in the same way um, we received samples I tasted them I said I want these coffees they shipped it there was no problem um, and I know for a lot of other roasters, uh, getting coffee could be a struggle, at least the last two years. Now it's okay again, but and uh, partly because a lot of roasters sold much more coffee and uh, the importers didn't kind of think about that when they bought for that year. And also because uh, there was logistically a nightmare, you know, with the containers and stuff like that. So that's kind of, <clears throat> I think, the best part of benefit that I've seen like that's a very concrete thing other than the quality and you know that stuff so I guess it creates a lot of like uh, predictability both for you as a buyer and for and the, for, the farmer. for the farmer yeah and that's kind of we haven't even touched on that you know but uh, uh, we talked a lot about that with the coffee collective in the previous episode about transparency but you know uh, when Elias knows every year we I say you know next year I'm gonna buy minimum 140 bag, maybe 160. And the price, we already know, it's $5 per pound. Sometimes we pay a little bit more if it's the quality is better. Maybe this year we'll have to raise the price a little bit because this cost has gone up quite a lot. Fertilizers are more expensive, food, uh, workers, everything. But uh, it's predictable for him, so that means he can, even though he made good money on his coffee last year, if he didn't know that I would come back, he would probably not spend it, you know. And when I say spend it, it's not like going to the casino and <laughs> gambling. <laughs> and when I say spend it, it's spending it on investing in yeah. his farm. And it, it's such a big difference when I see, I showed you photos a couple of weeks ago. I mean, from the 10 years ago, seeing the farmhouse then, comparing to now, like it's two different worlds. And he sent his kids to college or university. Um, he has a new mill that's much more uh, efficient and better to clean and uses less water. He has you know, better working conditions for the workers, um, more dryers so that he can produce more good quality. So I think the farmers that we work with, at least most of them say that, you know, fetching the highest price is not necessarily the most important, but to have predictability, that's what they need. And it's kind of like when we have a shop, you know, you would hate to <clears throat> open the shop and uh, not be sure that people will come in. So that's why you need regular customers who come in every day. And uh, that's why you need to treat them well. <laughs> so I think farming is, you know, it's just a business like uh, any other. You, if you are good at service and, you know, nice with your customers, because we are a customer of Elias, although we have kind of a very close working relationship, um, it's still a customer relationship I would say and uh, if I as a customer don't treat him well he will also fire me as a customer because he can do that as well so it goes both ways I think Whew. thank you for joining thank you for thank having you. us it's been a cool 
I feel like I've talked for three hours. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, if uh, our listeners have any questions, we you can always ask on our Instagram, I guess. That's the best way to do it. Um, and then uh, make sure you listen to the Funky Coffee episode if you want to know more about ferment and also the episode about transparency where we talk a little bit more about uh, how we pay farmers and why we pay more for our coffee. I think that's without payment, we cannot sit and talk about this that we have done today. So uh, everyone talks about sustainability these days, you know, but to even to get there, you first have to make sure that they have the economy <laughs> and economic stability and sustainability before we can start talking about climate uh, stuff and you know because in most cases as you know probably in uganda where farm farms are extremely small uh, even if we paid a hundred dollars per pound you know it wouldn't be enough because it's such a small amount so there we have to find other ways to do it i think in addition to paying well Cool. Thank you for joining me and thank you for listening to our listeners. I'm sorry about my sore throat. I had a little bit of cold, but I uh, hope you will enjoy this episode and uh, also tune in to our next episodes. And again, if you have any questions or suggestions, then don't hesitate to contact us on Instagram. Tim Wendelbaugh, that's the hashtag. Thanks for joining us and uh, bye bye.